Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our interactive daily broadcast where trusted leaders bring insights and analysis to the issues from a biblical perspective. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get biblical answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Welcome everybody to the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris, and uh, we are very excited to have you joining us today. I uh, actually have a special guest with me today right here in the studio. My good friend, Bill Federer, uh, is with us, and aren't we blessed to be able to have you with us, Bill. Thanks for coming up. Well, I'm honored to be with you, Richard. Uh, Bill has been ministering uh, down in Colorado Springs today at the Mario Murillo and Lance Wall Now Fire and Glory uh, crusade, a giant tent meeting is what it is with about 5,000 people last night is what I understand. So uh, I'm going to be speaking there tomorrow. Uh, excited to have that event going on here in our backyard. Well, and I was thrilled that two large churches, Mark Cowarts with Church for All Nations and Todd Hudnall, Hudnall and the Radiant Church, um, they got together and yeah. hosted it. And so there's this sign of unity, which just really opens up the door for the Holy Spirit to move. Mm, amen. So. Amen. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're going to be, this meeting is going to be going on through tomorrow night through no through Wednesday night, uh, down in Colorado Springs at church for all nations. So anybody here locally, uh, make sure to uh, make it out for that meeting. In fact, I heard there were people coming in from other States from, uh, Wyoming and Idaho and other places. So, uh, wherever you are, if God's pulling you, uh, go ahead and make it out. You've still got time. It's going to be a great thing. But it's awesome to have you with us here on Truth and Liberty, Bill. Um, just uh, saw Bill minister at the Summer Family Bible Conference uh, here at Andrew Womack Ministries a couple of weeks ago, and it was awesome. So uh, just great to have you with us. Yeah, that was just an enor enormously uh, fascinating time. I talked about how the first century of the founding of America, you had Calvinist Puritans, and mm. they had this amazing plan of how we can rule ourselves without a king. Mm -hmm. And it's called the covenant form of government. And um, after a century, it got a little dry. And so they uh, changed it uh, where in comes these revivalists. And they said, it's more than a plan. You have to have an experience with Jesus. But when you do, you're going to withdraw from worldly things, mm. including government. Yeah. And so where the Calvinist Puritans said, hey, everybody, let's get involved. We, every citizen can covenant together with each other and with God, and we can rule ourselves without a king. And then the revivalist says, no, 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 don't get involved in government because it's worldly. Mm -hmm. And then I come back around and says, well, is it holier not to be involved? What do you do with Numbers chapter 30? That's the chapter that says, uh, if a daughter is still living in her father's house and binds herself with a vow in the day the father hears it, if he's silent, her vow stand. Yeah. And that's come down to us as vows in a wedding ceremony. And the pastor says, if you're silent, you're giving consent to the wedding vows. Well, if a church member's silence gives consent to wedding vows, their silence gives consent to other things. Mm. If they're killing babies in the community and the church member is silent, that church member is giving consent to killing babies. Mm -hmm. And if you give consent to sin, you share in the guilt of the sin and you share in the judgment. Mm. And if you drive by a school and you know they're teaching the trans agenda, 
And you know, Jesus said in the beginning, God made them male and female. Right. And yet you're silent. You're giving consent to teaching something other than what Jesus taught. Jesus says, if you allow one of these little ones that please me to stumble, better than a millstone be put around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. Mm -hmm. So all these church members that think they're being spiritual by not getting involved by their silence, they're giving consent to sin. They're inviting the judgment of God on their heads. Wow. You know, you, you ministered for over an hour. I think it was two hours in this amazing uh, message that was um, uh, that was uh, uh, like a tour de force of world history, Christian history since, I don't know, the Middle Ages or something. I think you need to turn your microphone on. Uh, do you have a... Um, there you go. So, folks, if you're watching today, uh, we would love to hear from you. This is a live call-in show. Whatever your questions are, if it's on topics that Bill and I happen to touch on today, uh, that is awesome. If it's just a Bible question or something about politics or government, we'd love to hear from you no matter what it is. So call in to our number 719-619-2341. Also, uh, today, if you're in need of prayer, you need someone to stand with you in agreement uh, or encourage you, please feel free to call into Andrew's 24-7-365 prayer line, and that number is 719-635-1111. We have a whole room full of Spirit-filled, Word of God trained prayer ministers, and miracles come uh, out of that arm of this ministry every single day. So if you need prayer, please call in. Also, I wanted to mention um, Truth and Liberty, uh, we exist in order to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to stand for truth in the seven mountains of cultural influence. Part of our website is devoted to providing you with resources that you need to get educated and equipped. So I encourage you to go to our website today and check out the resources page. And did you know that we have a 24-7 news feed on truthandliberty.net? You don't really need to go anywhere else because we've already picked for you the best reliable conservative news sources. And uh, those articles are streaming into our website 24 hours a day, and you can find all the news there. Um, also, we have coming up here at the ministry the Healing is Here conference on August 8th through the 12th. Uh, that is the biggest conference of the year here at AWMI. You want to register for that now. Uh, Andrew is going to be ministering along with several other men of God, including um, in, including, uh, let's see here, Benny Hinn, Carly Terradez, Benny, uh, Barry Bennett, who was healed miraculously of cancer, stage four cancer, and uh, Greg Moore and others. So uh, register today. Bill, I, there are so many things that we could talk about today, um, but you've got a couple of books with you. Um, you have authored, what, 30, 40 books, something like that? Uh, About 30. You're incredibly prolific, and uh, I, I, I'm just uh, amazed at your productivity. But the two that you brought here today, let's talk about this one first, um, uh, Miracles in American History. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my wife has heard me speak for around 30 years, and <laughs> I do a daily email. It's called the American Minute. Uh -huh. It's also a radio spot. I also did it as a television spot on the TCT network. And it's things that happen in American history for each day of the year and then I get into the faith behind it. So D-Day, Battle of the Bulge, Battle of Gettysburg, Lewis and Clark, and, and so I'll go through, tell the history, but I'll also bring out things about faith. Hmm. I mean, people don't realize that during the uh, War of 1812, the British set fire to our White House, mm -hmm. our Capitol building, they were going up in flames. Well, the president was James Madison, and he had a day of prayer. And then he had another day of prayer, then he had a day of fasting and prayer. And so during this time, Dolly Madison, the president's wife, she has dinner set and they have this 
panic in the streets. The British are coming. She has the foresight to take the painting of George Washington off the mantle of the fireplace. They roll it up. She rides out of town on a carriage. The British Admiral George Cockburn comes into the White House, sees the table set, sits down, eats dinner, and then sets the White House on fire. <laughs> and then he goes to the, the Capitol chambers, and he has his soldiers sit in the seats of our congressmen, and he says, who votes to burn the American Capitol? They all say, aye, and they burn our Capitol. And it's going up in flames. Well, then a tornado comes in and it knocks off roofs and chimneys on the British soldiers, actually picks up British cannons and throws them yards away. And lightning begins striking at the British soldiers. And this British Admiral George Cockburn exclaims to some lady, great God, Madame, is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal city? To which the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. <laughs> They're driven out, the rains come, and the torrential rains extinguish the fires. Wow. And it was a miracle that saved our capital. Mm -hmm. But that's just one of the stories that are in here. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I write sort of long, and my wife likes wants to keep editing it down. So, so there's short stories. There's like, you know, five, six pages per story. We actually had D. James Kennedy ministry uh, use this as their gift-raising fundraiser. So they, they were offering this for $100 each. Wow. And then, you know, we are now republishing it for, you know, a lot less. So, but uh, if anyone's interested in it, um, it's called American uh, Miracles in American Miracles History. Miracles in American History. And I've got, uh, there, it originally came in three softbound volumes. I've got the, I'm going to get this hardback one. I think I'm going to give it to my son to read as well as we're, well, we're homeschooling him. And, well, thank you, Bill. You guys, uh, so Bill is not only a board member at Truth and Liberty, he teaches at the Karis Bible College Practical Government School. In fact, that's where we first met. And uh, he just has a knowledge of world history and American history that is incredible. And um, uh, I encourage you guys all to take advantage of his resources. Be sure, if nothing else, to go on his American Minute website and sign up for those daily emails every single day of the week. Well, it's five days a week, not seven. No, no, every day. Yeah. Every day. Okay, every day of the week, he sends out an email that has chocked full of all these amazing facts and history uh, that's just fascinating and so informative. You know, in America, we, um, I think we are losing the knowledge of our history here, Bill. Don't you agree with that? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was a Pulitzer Prize winning historian on John F. Kennedy's staff. And the quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. Mm. So you think memory is, I mean, imagine an individual who's lost their memory. Maybe they have yeah. Alzheimer's. Yeah. Really sad. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. We have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that planet Earth has ever seen with more individual opportunity and, and rights and we forgot how we got here and we forgot who we are and when they come in with their critical race theory and brainwash all these kids and oh we're a terrible nation it's like we fought a war to end slavery no other nation has fought, fought a war to end slavery mm -hmm. i mean we we stopped uh, japanese imperialism and national socialist workers party hitler i mean we we that america has done these amazing things but because christians have been not involved they've created a vacuum and into it have been sucked all these globalists and all these people pushing their different agendas trans agenda and so forth yeah. and um, but we need to be involved and realize. And so when you share history stories, it's sort of like giving an Alzheimer patient their memory back. Mm. And they get a little flicker in their eyes like, you know, Richard, is that you? Wow. You know? And, wow. and um, so, so we have a great history. Mm. And, and one of the broad stroke pictures I give is the most common form of government in world history is kings. 
Yeah. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars, the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. Mm. Instead of killing with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or phalanx, spear, scimitar, sword, gunpowder. Whoever gets the next military advancement has a window in time to expand, right? The Mongols had a composite bow could shoot as far as an English longbow, which was six feet tall, but they had a cur recurve in it, so it was only three feet tall, so they could use it on horseback. Mm -hmm. So you had these 100,000 Mongolian men on horseback shooting these composite bows like 300 yards, and the enemy couldn't even reach them, mm -hmm. and they just wiped out, and they conquered. But um, when Genghis Khan died, they had his big funeral, and they sort of called off fighting for a year. Well, guess what? All the other countries could learn how to make composite bows, and they, they never got their momentum going again. Mm. But you can sort of pick it up, and as the time goes on, the weapons get more powerful, and the advantage window gets shorter. And now it's all through computers, through AI, through drones. It's becoming more technological. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I bring out in a book called Socialism is uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War, 5th century BC. And he's talking about how battle strategy, you always want to get uphill, fighting downhill. But then he says, supreme excellence in a commander is to get your enemy to surrender without a fight. Mm. It's like, hmm, how do you do that? You psych him out. You mm -hmm. mentally overwhelm them so that they get disheartened and, and get in fear and give up. And it's in the Bible. You have it done against Israel with the 10 spies coming back with a negative report, and the Israelis panicked and wanted to stone Moses and go back to Egypt, and, and God was furious and struck those 10 guys dead and said, you're going to wander for 40 years. But they were defeated in their mind. Mm -hmm. They didn't even get into the Holy Land to even fight a battle. They were defeated in their mind. Right. And then in the flip side, you have Gideon. You have this army of 100,000 Midianites invading and getting with 300 courageous guys with their torches and their clay pots and their trumpets just stood in a circle and they just made noise and, sh and the, the enemy freaked out in their mind. And in the dark started killing each other. These guys just stood in there blowing their trumpets while they're just killing each other, right? So the enemy was defeated in their mind. So now we're realizing that military strategy is actually mental strategy. Yeah. And that's where the Bible comes in, because God says over and over again, fear not, fear not, fear not. And the enemy wants to get you into fear. It's called fear mongering, right? And uh, or we call it shock and awe when we went into, you know, Iraq the first time. It's like we came on with a such overwhelming force and that just they were just, you know, and um, the pirates called it um, uh, false flag. And so I spoke in Beaufort, North Carolina to a large group and they had tables full of judges and everything. And, uh, but the couple that led me around, the husband worked at the museum where they had Blackbeard and his Queen Anne revenge ship. And it had, it had sunk in the harbor there off the outer banks of North Carolina. And so this was the museum. And, and he said, you know, they didn't really want to kill people. They would... Um, uh, raise a flag that would look like they're an, an innocent vessel in distress. Uh -huh. And they would lure another ship to come by, oh, look, false they need flag. help, we can help. And then when they get gotcha. too close, they would pull down that false flag and put up a pirate flag. And these people would be like, ah, and they were too close to be able to get away. And Blackbeard was like this six foot eight guy with this mop of black hair and black beard and he would take wicks that you would light a cannon with and he would light them on fire and stick them in his beard and in his hair and he'd be like this giant smoking demon and he'd have his pistols in his hand and his dagger and his teeth and these men would like board, jump onto the ship and the people would be like oh you take my money right they would panic in fear uh -huh. and give away everything 
And so this is now a concept called false flags, where you intentionally structure to get a population into fear, and then they surrender. So it's the same military strategy, but now it's it's a battle for the mind. Interesting. I mean, do, do you, uh, you know, we, we're now, I guess, coming out of the official state of emergency declared over the COVID pandemic. Um, and I was just uh, making a list yesterday of all the different things that we were told when the COVID regime started that have turned out to be false. Do you think there was an element of false flag operation in COVID? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, the reason I say that is because when you look at the Cold War, so World War II ends and you have brand new countries coming into existence in Europe mm -hmm. and in India and in Africa, and they were setting up republics and they were going to be free. And the Soviet Union didn't like that. And so they would send in agents to do critical theory. What's critical theory? Mm -hmm. You observe all the groups, ethnically, racially, religiously, socially, and you call some victims and others oppressors, haves and has nots, Sunni, Shiite, Orthodox, um, you know, Croats, Serbs, and you would call them victims and oppressors, pit them against each other when they would start fighting and everyone would get in fear and panic and they would beg for someone to come along and restore order. And that's where you had some, you know, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with, that nobody likes anymore with a Soviet puppet. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't do it without the media. Okay. And so they would first co-opt the media with bribes or threats to blame the current leader for all the crisis problems. Mm. So they'd have a crisis and they'd go, it's the leader's problem, it's the crisis and it was the leader's fault. So people were like, I don't like the leader. And when they, they would do polling and when they got there, or the people blamed the leader, then they would do the coup or the rigged election. Mm. And nobody would challenge it mm -hmm. because he was, was now unpopular. Yeah. And simply they took those tactics and they used them on, a, on American soil, but they've also used them globally. Right. They want to and they're they they you know how you do polling. They do continuous polling and they can see what stories are trending and who's forwarding it to who. They got like it's a space control room. Right. And, and their NSA and and um, and so they uh, they want to see and isolate who is who is giving these stories and they want to cancel them. And then they want to let their story trend. And, um, and it's. I've talked to guys who worked in the military. Oh yeah, we worked in the psychological operations department. I mean, they literally have departments that are how you, and in 2016, there used to be a law that says you, after Operation Mockingbird during the Cold War, where you had Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA and they were using these tactics on Americans. And it was written about in the Rolling Stone magazine in 1977, the CIA and the press. And it was something that was legitimate. Carl Bernstein was the, art, was the Watergate reporter. Uh -huh. And he's the one that says that the CIA have 400 people in the press. And they're mm -hmm. feeding stories to the American public. And when it became news, then the CIA said, oh, we're going to stop that program. It's like, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, now we see that um, uh, these type of things, uh, and you know, you can't help but like some of the things that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is talking about because he'll just spill spill the beans. It's like, yeah, the CIA's got, and um, so yeah. so these well, are psychological operations. But in 2016, Obama signed some executive order or that allows the government to go back to the Operation Mockingbird and to begin to officially feed stories to the American public for the sake of national security. But basically, they're wanting to steer the um, Goebbels in Germany said it's the absolute right of the government to form the public opinion of the nation. Oh, yeah, there's a little conflict of interest there, I, I think. Know. Well, so, Bill, um, 
uh, one of the things you said earlier, I want to I want to touch on. Um, you referred to the idea uh, when revival came after the the first uh, Calvinist. Um, uh, what do you call them, pilgrims or Puritans or whatever? The, the Calvinists uh, said we ought, we need to get involved in government. Um, it, it's our duty and and uh, our our covenant form of government. But then along came ref another wave of reform. The, this had its roots in Germany, right? And is called the Pietists. Right. Okay. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think we still are under some of the vestiges of that wrong thinking today. You're right. So Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517 because he had a personal revelation that just shall live by faith. So personal to him, he's willing to stand up to the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and say, unless you can prove me wrong from Scripture, here I stand, so help me God. Very personal. But some German princes said, I want to break from Rome. This is my chance. Kingdom of mine, I just decided you're all now Lutherans. And the people in the kingdom say, okay, we're Lutheran. What do we believe? <laughs> so for the people in the kingdom, it's not the same personal experience as Martin Luther. Just a new state doctrine, maybe a little more scriptural emphasis. And so a revival movement starts called pietism that says, look, being a Christian is more than agreeing with state doctrine, as good as it is. You have to have an experience with Jesus, and when you do, your life will change. And you won't do worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in government. Wait, what was that last thing? Yeah, government's filled full of worldly people. If you're really Christian, you won't be involved in government. And so where the Calvinist Puritan says, hey, everybody, we can all get involved in a covenant with each other and with God, and we can rule ourselves without a king. And yet these pietists say, no, don't get involved, it's worldly. There were even German princes that donated money to the pietists so they would teach their people not to get involved in the prince's business. Mm. Like, here's some more money, stay out of my hair, you know. And so it turned into the German concept of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the government, the kingdom of the church, the two don't touch. Mm. And after four centuries of that, Hitler was allowed to put Jews on train cars, and they're going by the churches crying out for help. And the church's response was, well, that's the government doing that, and we're the church, and that's their circle, and this is ours, and we can't touch that. So, so let's just sing praise songs to Jesus louder. Mm. Can anybody sounds, see there's something wrong there? Sounds a little bit like separation of church and state. Yeah. yeah. And so when you run into somebody that says, I'm a little more spiritual than you are because I'm not involved. Yeah. I just focus on the gospel. I am I'm pure gospel. I am so much more spiritual than you are. And you're still carnal. You're still, you're still worried about carnal stuff like, you know, government. And, but I'm, I'm a little bit more spiritual than you are. That goes back to these pietists. Yeah. Now, to their credit, they did spread revival, and they did focus on a personal relationship with Jesus. But the, the ditch on the side of the road was it's so personal that it's only personal. Yeah. Just withdraw and enjoy your own personal relationship. Well, well the, there is a middle of the road. And the middle of the road is, yes, it is a personal experience with Jesus, but you want to be involved so you can have a country where your kids can have a personal experience with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't get involved and they push this trans agenda, not only do they teach the kids there is no God, if there is a God, He is messed up. He is putting men in women's bodies, and you have to have operations, not just one operation, a lifetime of operations, and infections, and wounds that keep wanting to close up instead of, and, and then having diapers and, and all this type of stuff. And then when they put the girls on puberty blockers, their bones don't get enough calcium, and they get fractures, and, and they're condemning these kids to lifetime of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And these Christians are saying, oh, I'm more spiritual than you are because I'm not involved. No, you're not. Your silence is giving consent to that. And if you give consent to that, you're going to be judged. Or the, how about the Christians who say, well, we just need to love them. 
just need to love the the transgender people and not not make a, a you know not object to this ideology. Uh, we just need to accept them and love them. And and they refuse to stand up for the truth. They they flee from confrontation over these ideas. Uh, is is that historic Christianity? Is that Jesus teaching, or is that man being afraid of what others think? and hiding behind, you know, a shield of fake religiosity. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. The verse right before it says, confront your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Mm -hmm. Another translation says, rebuke your neighbor openly so you will not incur their guilt upon you. So here they are loving each other as themselves and they're correcting each other. Mm -hmm. It is a self-policing system. The New Testament says, if your brother sin, rebuke him. It said, exhort, reprove, rebuke. You know, um, the uh, uh, Jesus didn't sit around all day and pet lambs, right? I mean, his Jesus's first sermon ended with them wanting to push him off a cliff. <laughs> Another sermon ends with them picking up stones to stone him. Mm-hmm. Another time, he's invited to someone's house for dinner, and the host noticed Jesus didn't wash his hands. And Jesus speaks out. He goes, "You Pharisees are more concerned about the outside of the cup and not the inside." You're like a tomb, beautiful on the outside, inside full of dead men's rotting bones. And the lawyer says, well, Jesus, by saying that, you're insulting us lawyers. He goes, let me tell you about your lawyers. You have burdens on people too heavy to carry. You don't even lift a finger yourself. And he's, he's telling them off. Yeah, yeah. And then the chapter ends, and you wonder if they ever got around to eating dinner. This is our loving Jesus, right? To the prideful, he was tough as nails. To the humble, he was as loving as could be. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Yeah. Right? If you fall on the stone, you're broken. Right, you you voluntarily humble yourself, but if you don't, the stone falls on you. You're crushed, mm-hmm. right? And so you can approach God humbly or pridefully, and you're going to get right. And so Jesus, when he went into town, things happened. Yeah. He, he did. The town was not the same when he went in. Some people loved him and humbled themselves and got healed and raised from the dead and everything. And other ones saw Lazarus raised from the dead and they said, we got to kill this Jesus. I mean, their response was, so, um, and the Apostle Paul, he went into a town, some people believed, other ones went, we got to stone him to death. And so if Jesus is in you and you are going into a town, wouldn't it make sense that you would have a similar reaction? The humble, right, they're going to receive, but you are going to catch heat from those that are prideful. And Jesus, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And we can't be afraid of, now, what's one of the most valuable things you have? It's your name, Hmm. your reputation. It says a good name is to be rather chosen than great riches. And so when we say, we're going to give all for Jesus, well, what's one of the things you have to give is is your name. Hmm. And it says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation. You have to be willing to let people say bad things about you for you to serve Jesus. Yeah. You have to be saying, okay, they might post something bad. They might unfriend me. They might unfollow me. I might not even get invited to a party. <laughs> right. Right. But you have to say, I'm going to lose the fear of man and only care about the fear of God. That's right. And you got Peter. He's with a group around a fire and a girl gets in his face and says, you are with Jesus. And you can just picture Peter looking around the fire and they're all eyeing him. And he realizes he's just about to get kicked out of the group. And he says, I never met the guy. Like, that's it? You cave that fast? Mm -hmm. There is a real fear of being pushed out of a group. But after the resurrection, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And the Sanhedrin said, we told you never to speak in his name. And Peter said, it's better to obey God rather than men. Yeah. It's only when you have a relationship with God can you not care about what people say about you. Well, we are coming up on our first break here. It feels like we just started actually, but uh, getting another uh, amazing lesson here from Bill Federer. So if you've got questions or comments that you'd like to uh, ask of Bill or share today, uh, please feel free to call in to our number 719-619-2341. And uh, we're going to start taking those questions after the break uh, and uh, uh, really looking forward to it. Now, Bill, um, what, again, what's your website? So if people want to check that out, they can go there. Uh, it's AmericanMinute.com. That's simple, isn't it? AmericanMinute.com. We have an another new book, too, the, on, on Booker T. Washington. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, you want to mention that? Um, so so he is the first black man to have his picture on a U.S. postage stamp, his picture on a 50-cent piece coin, the first black man to be the president of a university, Tuskegee, first black man to have dinner in the White House with Teddy Roosevelt. And just an amazing individual. He said the best way to lift yourself up is to lift up somebody else. Wow, he's amazing. I want to come back to Booker T after the break for just a few minutes because he really is an incredible American hero. But now we're going to take about 90 seconds and share some information with you. And we'll be right back after that. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Andrew has many conferences and seminars around the globe each year. For the latest information on Andrew's complete speaking schedule, visit our website at awmi.net slash events. You were created with a purpose. Written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. All right, well, we're back after our break here with Bill Federer on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. Uh, I'm just sitting here soaking this up like a sponge. I hope you are too. Uh, don't worry about taking notes because there's too much information. You're just going to have to trust God <laughs> with this. But Bill, you mentioned your latest book, which is uh, about Booker T. Washington. Can you uh, show that? Hold that up there so people can see that. So Booker T. Washington, um, it says strength and courage. You know, he is actually one of my favorite figures of American history. Uh, he truly rose from absolutely nothing, a slave, dirt floor, you know, uh, terrible conditions. Um, and uh, became a great leader and has contributed so much to American history. Why did you write this book about him though? Yeah, he's just an unsung hero. I mean, he is so powerful. He made such a great impact on America. And, uh, but today's political 
correct people sort of overshadow him. So uh, born in 1856, he lived through the slavery. He remembers his mom praying uh, for Lincoln to get victory. And he remembers some white man coming into the, the plantation quarters and reading a piece of paper. And he didn't know what it said, but afterwards everybody was crying. And, and, he, and his mom said, this is what I've been praying for. And, and you just can't help but be pulled into the story. Mm -hmm. And then he says, all of a sudden it got somber when they went back to their cabins and they suddenly realized they had to figure out how to make a living mm -hmm. and where they're going to get their food and where they're going to get. And, and all of a sudden he said, all the weight of that, these worries have now descended upon them. And then you get into the, um, how he um, never met his dad. Uh, and then his mom had a, a husband and they moved to West Virginia and his, his stepdad had him work three jobs a day. I mean, th all day long, but he wanted to go to school so bad. And so he promised his dad that he would work and then he would go to school and then he'd come back. And one time he was working in a coal mine and he says, I'm not proud of the story, but I wanted to go to school so bad that I changed the, cl the clock and made it look like it was you know later than it was. So it would ding and so they'd get off the shift so he could go and he could make it to school on time. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, but then they put the clock in a, in a cage so I couldn't do that. And I felt bad about that. And then he um, I talked about how his mom was always his advocate and she got him a job at a wealthy person's house. And so, and then he um, uh, found out about the union generals and how they would start schools for the freed slaves. Mm. And one was called the Hampton Institute. And it was founded by uh, Samuel uh, Chapman Armstrong, who grew up as a missionary in Hawaii with Hiram Bingham and everything. So you got a Hawaiian missionary starting the Hampton Institute School. George Washington Carver like walks 500 miles to get there. My goodness. I mean, he's, he's in Richmond and he's like sleeps underneath the wooden sidewalk and he hadn't eaten in three days. And he sees a boat and they're unloading pig iron. And so he goes over there and says, I can help. And the guy says, okay, if you can unload it. He goes, I was so hungry, but I wanted to work really hard. And they finally paid me so I'd get some food. I mean, just really, and then he finally gets there and he's like, I'm, He's, they, uh, there was this lady who was in charge of admitting the students. Mm -hmm. And he, um, uh, she put him in a room and then came in and said, I want you to clean the room. And he like, because I was working at this rich person's house back there, I knew how to do it. He said, I went through, I cleaned that room three times. I cleaned all the dust. And, and then she came back with her handkerchief and she like checked to see if there were dust. And he called, he said, I call that my sweeping test because he swept the room so good. And she said, okay, we'll admit you to the school. Okay. And uh, anyway, he, he is the best student. He um, uh, graduates. He uh, then goes to Wayland Bible Seminary in Washington, D.C. Then he goes and uh, works in West Virginia, back in the coal mine, uh, in the salt furnace, and then he teaches at the uh, at church, he teaches a Sunday school class at an African Methodist Episcopal church, and then he uh, goes back to Tuskegee and speaks at their graduation, and he's so impressive, they hire him. And then when they're wanting to start another Freedmen's College in Alabama, and they approach Samuel Chapman Armstrong and say, well, who do you recommend? He says, how about this this black gentleman, Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, we didn't actually think that you could have a, a black man be the president of the, and so he becomes the first black man who's a president of a university. Mm -hmm. He goes to Tuskegee, there's, there's really nothing there. So they're having a, the first class is in an African Methodist Episcopal church. Is he recruits students, they make the bricks out of which they build the school. 
he recruits an, a black architect from MIT and he designs their chapel and then he recruits George Washington Carver to come and teach in agriculture. And um, I love the letter. He says um, to, to George Washington Carver, who is um, there in um, Iowa State and he's an assistant professor, and he says, um, I cannot offer you money, position, or fame. The first two you have, money and position, and he says, the, the third you'll get in a short time, but I'm asking you to give all that up and come down here and all I can offer you is work. Hard, hard work, but with the knowledge of bringing people from degradation, poverty, and waste of full manhood. Signed, Booker T. Washington. Carver writes back and says, uh, I, I look forward to doing all I can through Christ who strengtheneth me to better the condition of our people. Mm -hmm. And he goes down there and he builds the agricultural department and, and, and George Washington Carver gets internationally known. Booker T. Washington becomes friends with um, John D. Rockefeller mm. and with Andrew Carnegie. And he gets William McKinley he goes to D.C., meets President McKinley, the 25th president, who comes down and speaks there at Tuskegee. And then he meets Teddy Roosevelt, and he comes and speaks there. And, and then he gets invited over and he meets the Queen of England, Queen Victoria. And I mean, here's his, his national prominence. And, he, um, and his attitude was, if the best way to lift yourself up is to lift up somebody else. He wants, uh, I, want, I, want, I want all my Tuskegee graduates to make themselves useful. And he says, I want you not just to, to uh, get a job, I want you to create a job. We need more job, I don't want you to just have property, I want you to own property. And he started the Negro Business League 10 years before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was started. Hmm. And he says, look, let's pool our money as a people. That's, and so his attitude to become successful was the same as every wave of immigrants. So you'd have the Jews, the Germans, the, and they would come in on the bottom of the social ladder and be discriminated against and they would live together in their little apartments and they would work hard, they'd save their money and they'd buy a little business and buy a little farm. And over time they would raise in economic status and then they would run for office and they would, and then the next wave would come in and he says, we just need to follow this wave. And it, and it was working. And he was producing, he got an honorary doctor from Harvard. And the Harvard president said that Tuskegee's produced more millionaires in the last 10 years than Harvard has. And, and there's a whole chapter of American history of success, financially successful black men and women. And, um, uh, but then you have W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. And um, if you want, I can share a little bit about well, him. Well, before we go further on it, let me, let me say we've got some callers, uh, folks who are hanging on the line. We're gonna get to you in just a minute. And if you've got uh, a call, a uh, question for Bill Federer, we encourage you to call in today as well. I wanna, I wanna fast forward a little bit. Uh, you can mention uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois, Bill, but uh, Booker T, I want you to comment on Booker T Washington's attitude about racism and how to help uh, formerly enslaved blacks uh, and how and contrast that to the dominant attitude of the left today. Yeah, and, and I love this one quote. He says, I would never permit anyone to degrade, degrade my soul by making me hate him. Okay. Uh, another place, he said, the, um, the best way to lift yourself up is to lift up somebody else. Yeah. He says, great men, cultivate love. Only little men cherish a spirit of hatred. Mm, yeah. And, um, and so it's such a positive message. And, and, and I wrote together with my son, uh, Richard Michael Federer. And so this is just an exciting book. Yeah. I mean, it really is hopeful. And here's a man and he, he read the Bible. He says, I would, uh, no matter how busy I was, I always made a point to read a chapter of the Bible every morning. Wow. So he, he's a Christian black man who overcame racism and slavery and poverty 
through hard work, uh, serving other people and an optimistic attitude. Today on the left, what we have is an entire culture and mindset that says there's America's a, a corrupt nation, an evil nation, systemically racist, and the cure for it is reverse racism. Uh, critical race theory teaching that uh, you have oppressors and oppressed and white people are inherently oppressors, blacks are the oppressed, so we need to reverse that racism uh, and, and punish white people, exclude white people, take away uh, their privileges and give them to blacks. Do you think Booker T. Washington would have agreed with that approach? No, no, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, they're not highlighting his heritage, mm -hmm. and, um, but he brought healing. And he did it in such a Christian way. Uh, but at that time, there was a guy in Harvard named W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. A church actually paid for him to go to Harvard. And he uh, went over to Germany. And he praised socialism in Germany. And then he went over to the Soviet Union and met Stalin four times. And he praised Stalin. And this is the same time that they're killing millions of people. And then he went over and met with Mao Zedong in China. And Mao Zedong is responsible for killing about 80 million people. And then W.E.B. Du Bois went over to Eastern Germany and he got an honorary degree from some communist university. And then he, uh, and he's the one that says, don't do the Booker T stuff. He says, demand reparations. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he criticized Booker T. And um, he even joined the U.S. Communist Party in 1960. Wow. And then W.E.B. Du Bois repudiated his American citizenship, went over to Ghana, became a citizen over there, and then he died. But yet it was his philosophy that infiltrated academia yep. and infiltrated these schools that were started by these Christian Union generals after the Civil War. And he uh, even influenced those who wrote the history books about Booker T. So if you read their history books of Booker T, they'll say, oh, well, he was, um, you know, uh, uh, kissing up to the white man's system, so to speak, by, by working hard. And um, but yet you have to realize the person that's writing that history is the person that is bought into the W.E.B. Du Bois mindset. Yeah, the class but warfare. But as himself, he overcame tremendous obstacles to achieve enormous things, to become a little slave boy, to become an internationally known individual, that meeting with presidents and kings and queens, and just an amazing story of um, hard work of Christian ethics, and one that needs to be highlighted again. Built on, you know, love, faith in God, um, and uh, and an uh, you know optimistic uh, mindset versus the the whole philosophy on the left today, which I think is rooted in envy um, and uh, and really uh, desperation, not desperation, but there's no hope in the leftist message. There's no faith in the leftist message. It's all about uh, class warfare, pitting one group of people against another. Well, Bill, we, I could, we could talk about Booker T and all the, these other characters all day long, but we got to take some questions here. So uh, why don't we begin by going to Mitchell, uh, who's calling from Tennessee. Mitchell, thanks for your call today. Uh, what's your question? You're welcome. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, I have a question for you. Um, my mom and I were talking in the car the other day about the power grid being threatened, and, my, and I'll ask this question too after this one. Uh, my question is: Do you think do you, do you, do you think do you think eventually we are going to be without power forever? 
And I live in a high rise, okay? And my mom, I'm blind and everything. I've talked to you before, Brother Harris, I believe. Oh, okay. And um, I do very well. If you were me, and I know that to me, would you probably start thinking about going back and staying with family? In my case, or do you think it'll be, if it does happen, do you think it'll be years from now? What I'm saying is that, do you think our power grid will be eventually destroyed forever? Do you think, and my question is, if you were me, would you start thinking about going back with family? Well, thank you, Mitchell. Appreciate your question. I'd like to pitch it over to Bill uh, to find out what he knows about the risks to our power grid. I don't know if that's your area of expertise or not, Bill, but I know you stay pretty current on stuff. So what do you know about this? Yeah, um, I mean, as far as personal decisions, you'll have to seek the Lord on that. Uh, 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 Hank Cooper was a ambassador to Switzerland for Ronald Reagan. He's a friend of mine. He started High Frontiers. Uh, he was a scientist that when they were doing nuclear testing, he noticed that seven satellites went out right over where they were doing the testing. He realized there's something called EMP, electromagnetic pulse. And so it's the same way that if you were to have your, your room key to a hotel and you rub it up against your phone and then the room key stops working, the, the um, electronics in your phone has a, a magnet that, that takes away the, and so this is a magnetic wave um, and so if they detonate a nuclear weapon from the height that the Chinese balloon that floated over America floated, if they would have detonate, it would have sent out a cone of an electromagnetic wave that would demagnetize everything in that cone. So everything with the magnetic chip, uh, cars, cell phones, it, it'll just erase it. And, um, and it'll erase the power grid. Uh, and, you know, for example, we were in Florida when a, a hurricane went through and you couldn't get gas from the gas station because there was no electricity. So even the gas stations can't pump gas without electricity. And then, but, uh, but Hank Cooper and, and his son Scott, um, they're uh, highlighting the vulnerability of the power grid. And he, they've been going to power companies saying, you need to hardwire this so that if there is electromagnetic pulse that you have, and his big deal was on the east coast of America, you have nuclear power plants with spent rods of uranium that they put in pools of water that they cover with water for like centuries. <laughs> and as long as they're covered with water, everything's fine. But if the, they don't cover it with water and it, the water evaporates, then these rods get, uh, are exposed to the air, they heat up en enormously, and then they uh, end up like melting everything and sending out a Fukushima um, radioactive mess. Mm. And they said that um, you, they, they said, well, okay, if the electricity goes out, we've got diesel generators. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then you have to track the diesel there. Okay, well, the diesel comes in trucks with computer chips, and then they have to pump the diesel from the pump where there's electricity. And it's like, you know, you need to, to get a hard wire system going because if not, anyway, we yeah. are vulnerable. We are vulnerable. And, and, uh, and the way the power grid is set up, it's so interdependent. All you need to do is take out a portion of it in one area of the country and it short circuits the whole country. And so we are completely vulnerable. Hmm. And that's why there's a lot of concern of a lot of these people coming across the border, including Chinese men of military age. Uh, and so you see a lot of people coming across the border or poor people from Latin and South America. And then you have these wealthy Chinese people that have lots of money and they're coming up through Panama and it's like, what are they doing, right? Mm. And they're coming up, they're coming up they're across the border. And um, it's like, what are they doing in America?
Yeah. I mean, are they wanting to escape communism? But they're obviously doing it with the communist government knowing about them mm -hmm. because we know about them. And so are, is there a nefarious plot that, um, that to take advantage of it? And, and historically, whenever you look at taking down countries, you have a division going on on the inside that distracts them and weakens them so they can be vulnerable to an attack on the outside. Mm. I mean, even Philip of Macedon, when the father of Alexander the Great was wanting to capture Athens, that he paid people in Athens, citizens of Athens, to sow disunity. Yeah. And then when they were so disunified, he could come up to the gates and they couldn't get a defense and he conquers it from mm. the outside because they were defeated on the inside. Well, you know, this um, certainly is alarming, isn't it? Uh, especially as, the, as China's military power has grown and uh, we seem to have uh, misplaced priorities in our uh, military these days. More seem like they're more concerned about LGBT ideology and woke ideology than they are about um, uh, military supremacy. But uh, what I, I do know that God is is with us, and that through prayer and faith, um, you know, we can overcome. And it, it highlights the need for us to be alert. Uh, to be aware and to be involved as citizens in this nation, uh, that we cannot just trust what the media is telling us. We have to be informed ourselves and, and put uh, godly and responsible uh, men in office uh, who, will, uh, who will be good stewards over this nation. Mitchell, I just want to say that in response to your particular situation, I don't know enough to advise you on that. And that really is something that you ought to talk to your family about and commit to prayer and just let the Lord lead you on that. But I do appreciate your question. Uh, it raised an important issue. So thanks for calling in. Next, I'd like to go to Joseph, who's in Arizona. Uh, Joseph, thanks for calling today. Uh, what's your question for Bill Federer? Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank the two of you because we heard you minister at the Karis Family Bible College just over the summer, and it was a real blessing to us. So thank you for that. Uh, you're welcome. And um, our question is, uh, Bill brought up uh, um, some scripture from Numbers about when the father within his house is silent to the daughter's vow, that that is giving consent to the vow. And we want to know how can we make the jump from that to the church in the wider community, how if the church is silent, that it's giving consent to what's going on in our wider community. How do we jump from what the father is doing in the household to the church in the greater community? Right, um, local, 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 right? So as power concentrates into fewer hands globally, God's counterbalance is to get more people involved locally. And so an easy thing is the school boards. And whether you run for school board or you support somebody running for school board, but there, if you drive by a school and you know they're teaching the trans agenda, and you know Jesus taught in the beginning God made them male and female. And if you're silent, you're giving consent to teaching other than what Jesus taught. And in a sense, you're giving your consent to an anti-Christian message, an anti-Christian, the gospel of the Antichrist. Their, their tactic is to guilt trip you into being more Christian than Christ. You think, what? Think, yeah, they tell you, if you're really Christian, you'll be silent while we teach something that Jesus would never teach. Hmm. Right? So if you're really Christian, you won't act like Christ. And yet Jesus said, if you are silent and you allow one of these little ones that believes me to stumble better than a millstone we put around your neck, right? And so um, it is, uh, a, a, so there's more people that go to the churches in a community than vote in a school board election. 
So if you can just get all the churches to agree, and in a scriptural case can be made that Jesus cares about the little children. Jesus cares about what the little children are taught. Forget all the other races. Just focus on the little children. And if the, the churches can take responsibility for what's being taught to the kids in their neighborhood and say, look, we may not agree with all the other churches in town, but we're not happy with what they're teaching. We're all going to agree on this one mom, and we're all going to get our people to get out and vote for this one mom. And once she gets in, we're going to fill up the school board meetings. We're not going to sit back and let this person get hammered on when they bus in people to ridicule in front of everybody. No, we're going to get, we're going to continue to support them. And, and it's a doable thing. And, and Richard has lots of examples of school boards being flipped just by mobilizing people. And if we're faithful with that, I'm convinced that the higher races will take care of themselves. Mm. People yeah. that will they'll learn how it works and they'll do that. Right. Yeah. So, Joseph, I, that's awesome. Uh, exactly. Local, local, local. I say just start where you see opportunity. Uh, one of the things that that uh, everybody needs to consider doing is uh, starting a culture impact team in their local church. So we have resources on our website at Truth and Liberty about how to do that. Uh, the, the best culture impact team in the nation, one of the best is right here in Colorado Springs at Church for All Nations. We've got their materials uh, on the website. And you know these groups inside of a local church can bring information, resources, uh, and, and uh, speakers and things like that into the local church to help the people of that body be informed. But then they also can be uh, uh, you know, activists to go out into the community, to run for school board, to attend um, you know, le legislative hearings and, and, and things like that. So it's a really powerful tool to activate the local church. Every church needs one and every believer ought to uh, consider starting one. That's just one possible idea. So thank you for your call. Great question. Uh, next, uh, I want to go to Robert, who's in Florida, who has a very interesting question for you, Bill. Robert, you're on the line. Hi. Oh, hi, uh, Mr. Federer. My question uh, is, when George Washington was waging the war, the Revolutionary War, on his knees, appealing to heaven for God to answer his prayers so that they could win against a very, uh, as being an outnumbered group against the, the British, did he uh, rely on his appeals to heaven to uh, actually win the war? Um, we know they were outnumbered, but, but was it God answering his prayer to get the victory through the, through the men and to beat the British? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's one of the things we talk about in the book, Miracles in American History. So there's lots and lots of those stories. Um, George Washington was uh, the Continental Congress several times had days of fasting and prayer, and they would rush it out to George Washington, who would issue the order to his troops to observe the day of fasting and prayer. And then Washington appointed chaplains to every regiment. And then after the battles, Washington would give thanks to God, give thanks to Providence for the victory. And there's an interesting quote from Governor Jonathan Trumbull of Connecticut, who was the only governor of colonial, you know, the colonies to stay on and switch and become an American patriotic governor, mm. right? And so this Governor Jonathan Trumbull is writing to George Washington, and he says, to uh, trust alone in the righteousness of our cause without doing our utmost exertion would be tempting providence. Mm. So you don't just pray and put your feet up on the couch and wait for God to do something. Right. You pray and you do everything you can right. so that one of the names for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, which means helper. 
right? So you don't just sit there in your car, you, you get the car moving and the Holy Spirit will help you to turn the wheel and, and direct you. So you don't just sit on the bench, you get out on the, you know, if you think, uh, I, I'm, I never get the ball passed to me in a basketball game. It's like, yeah, because you're sitting on the bench. <laughs> get out there on the floor and put yourself in a position where you're under the basket and guess what, the ball will be passed to you. You, you get to where God is doing something. Make yourself available is one of the little sayings that I heard years ago and it stuck with me. It's not ability, it's availability. Hmm. You make yourself available, God will add all the ability you need. Just put yourself in a position for God to use you. That's why I love church involvement. It's not just hearing a sermon. It's hearing a sermon and putting yourself in a position where there's a need junior high, children's church, nursery, outreach, something where you're taking in and giving out. Because anything that grows takes in and gives out. For a muscle to grow, it has to be exercised, right? A, a tree takes in water, but it, and it gives out apples. Uh, the Dead Sea is dead because it takes in and water, but doesn't give out water. Right. So you can't just hear a sermon. That's why I hated the COVID response so much. Yes. Because it changed church structure. Instead of being there in a lobby of the church and you're, you know, talking with people over coffee and the older lady sees the younger lady and she looks a little worried and frazzled like, what's wrong, honey? Oh, the husband, the job, the kids. And she like prays for it. And there's ministry taking place without the pastor having to organize it. But the COVID response was just go home and listen to a good message on a screen. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you're taking in, but you can't give out. Were you going to witness to your pillow? Mm -hmm. You know, nice pillow. Mm -hmm. No, you, you, you hear something about the Word of God, you're filled with the Spirit, you put yourself in a position where there's a need, and water seeks its own level, and the Holy Spirit will guide and direct you to, to meet the need. Yeah. You know, it, uh, all the Founding Fathers, or many of them, uh, could be quoted of uh, giving God credit for intervening in the Revolution, uh, Revolutionary War, to help us overcome uh, uh, an enemy that was so much more powerful and uh, well-funded and everything else. Um, but what you're saying is really important, I think. Um, I, I think God will not do for us what we can do for ourselves. He's made us in His image and in His likeness and given us vast resources, including our own minds uh, and everything else. And now what He does promise is that He will come and step into the gap and He will do what we can't do. He will make up the difference so that we're victorious. So uh, I heard the other day that George Washington's letters showed that he averaged about three to four hours of sleep per night during the Revolution. Amazing, right? But these men, they didn't just, uh, you know, like you said, they didn't just pray and put their feet up and say, oh, well, God, if, you, if it's your will, Lord, it'll happen. No, they realized that it was their responsibility to get in and give it all they had. And that's pretty much where we are today, too, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've come up on a break here with about 10 seconds left. Uh, so uh, we've still got time left in our next segment for your call. So call in at 719-619-2341, and you can ask Bill Federer any question uh, about American history or the Bible or anything like that. So be sure to call in, and we'll see you after this break in just a few minutes. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. 
This is a godly nation. It was founded upon godly principles and the body of Christ needs to stand up against the rewriting of history. And in order for us to do that, we're gonna have to learn true history. God is calling us to rebuild His house so that He can manifest His glory in the midst of a corrupt and pagan world. I would argue that America has been more prosperous, more successful than any other nation because we've done more in reading and applying the Bible. We chose God and we chose to live by the Bible and we've done things no other nation's ever done. When the God of the impossible lives in us, the entire political reality can shift where we walk. We're the ones that have the truth. We're the ones that stand up. It is the history for Christians to speak out and to make a difference in this nation. Okay, well, welcome back to the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. Uh, we're here today with our good friend, board member, uh, uh, William Federer, Bill Federer, who's the author of 30 different books and uh, the American Minute uh, daily uh, history uh, briefing that every one of us needs to be signed up for. I know I am. I know Andrew Womack is. He reads it every single day. It's so educational. Uh, Bill, we were talking before the break about the power of prayer, but also about the importance that we all get involved and do our part. Um, there's, a, there's another subject that I'd love to dive into with you uh, uh, as we're uh, waiting for folks to call in today, and that is the, the debt problem in America and our monetary policy. So I was just checking some figures uh, this morning on this subject, and I, I saw that the United States debt, the amount that our government owes, this doesn't count private or consumer debt, right, that all, people all over the country have, but just what our government owes is uh, $35 trillion now, $35 trillion. Uh, in 2020, the figure was 9.7, in 2001, excuse me, 9.7. So in 22 years, we've more than tripled. We're approaching four times, a uh, fourfold increase in our national debt. And a lot of these people who love to spend money at the national level, they'll say, yeah, but it, as a percentage of GDP, it's not that high. Well, the truth is that that's gone through the roof as well. In 2001, our debt was only 55 only, <laughs> was 55% of our GDP, and today it's like 118% or more. Um, in other words, we are insolvent. We cannot pay back that debt. We don't make enough in a year to pay our national debt. Why do we, obviously government spending is a problem, but uh, what do we need to do to get this debt under control? Yeah, well, the thought is, is it because of irresponsible leaders or is it intentional? Mm. And one of the things I noticed in history is that debt always precedes the collapse of a country. Mm. The Ottoman Empire as long as it was expanding, it was living off of conquered Christians and Jews or whatever, but then when they didn't expand anymore, they didn't get any more of that free money and they ended up getting in debt and they eventually collapsed. The Romans, they were conquer Gaul, conquer the Middle East, and they would take all the treasures out of the temple in Jerusalem and they, and they would get, so as long as they were expanding, they were living off of the wealth of this. But then when Hadrian built the Hadrian's Wall and said this far and no further, we're not gonna expand anymore, they tried to live within their means, but they were so used to spending that they got in debt. Then they began to debase their Roman coins mm. with cheaper metals, right? And then they would, 
clip the edges off of the coins. If you see a quarter and there's a little ridges around the quarter, that's they would do the ridges to see if somebody had clipped off a little bit of it because they would clip off enough of the silver, right? And then you could eventually have enough silver for another coin, but, but then the Romans would be, begin to debase it with cheaper metals. Um, you, and then the Roman Empire got in debt and collapsed. The Spanish Empire, as long as they were living off of the Inca Peru silver and gold mines from the Potosi Mountain. Um, they had this gold and they were spending it as fast as they got it. And then when they didn't get any more and they lost their, their sunk a couple armadas, um, then they, they end up dropping from being the, the global leader, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the French Empire, when the French helped us during uh, this, the Revolutionary War, what did they get in return? Nothing but debt. So France got, so King Louis XVI, for helping America, he got in debt. And then they were so much in debt that when their crops failed a couple times, that's when they had the French Revolution to throw them out, right? Um, but the Soviet Union, Ronald Reagan did what's called the space race or the arms race. And so we were spending a percentage of our national money on weapons. And Russia tried to keep up, but they didn't have enough of an economy to keep. So they were taking funds that should have been used to strengthen their economy and their jobs and their infrastructure and was spending it on building tanks and submarines and they couldn't keep up and the Soviet Union financially collapsed because they got in debt. And so now we are voluntarily doing to ourselves what we intentionally did to bankrupt the Soviet Union. And so the thought is, do we have leaders that are that irresponsible mm. or is this intentional? Well, when you read The Great Reset, when you read Klaus Schwab and George Soros and all these people, and they literally talk about intentionally bankrupting America, intentionally bankrupting. Um, why? Because if America goes down, the world goes down. And then when there's this cry for help, they'll be able to come on the scene and say, well, we got this global digital currency and will help get the world back on track. And yeah, but you're going to have to give up your privacy and yeah, we're going to have to track everybody. And those that know the Bible, it's eventually going to be, you know, oh yeah, you have to get this chip, right? The market, you can't buy or sell without the, I mean, you can see Christians that know history and know a little prophetic can see where this is headed. Now the timeline, we'll never know. We, we can sort of sense we're getting closer, but even Jesus said the fathers reserved that to himself. And I, I sort of think that God's given himself a little leeway room because if we repent, he can put it off, right? And um, so, uh, but financially, the, the Great Reset. And so there's a 1935 cartoon in the um, Chicago Tribune. Now, 1935 is when Stalin is over in the Soviet Union. And this cartoon talks about Harvard and Yale and Columbia University being infiltrated with communist pinkos. They call them pinkos because the, the red, the, the Soviet Union's color was red. Red. And so this was like a sort of a, a, a lightened version of the red and they were pink. And so these were professors in Columbia University. And, and it says, this is the plan. Spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery, bankrupt the country, declare capitalism a failure and set up a dictatorship. And then in real small it says it worked in Russia. Hmm. So you have the government spending money it doesn't have on purpose under the guise of recovery. Well, we're spending this money to help stimulus programs and quantitative easing and all this nonsense, right? Under the, under the guise that we're helping recover, but it's not. The purpose of it is to spend so much that you go bankrupt. And then they're gonna say, well, capitalism doesn't work. 
and then we just we just have to surrender everything to God. And the government's like, well, we've been waiting for you to ask. We're going to restore everything. We're just going to have everybody go to a CBDC, central bank digital currency. We can tie it together with your ESG score, environmentally friendly, socially woke, and governance. We're going to tie it together with your DEI score, diversity, equity, inclusion. What's that? So you want to borrow money, you do a credit check. Well, they are going to check your DEI score, your, whether you're diverse enough, right? And they're doing it now with corporations. So if a company wants a loan, they go to the bank and you got BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, these big trillion dollar asset management companies that says, we're not going to do business with this little small bank unless you make sure that all of your people borrowing money line up with this DEI score. Wow. And so you have Anheuser-Busch saying, okay, bank, we need some money. And they said, no, 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 your DEI score is not high enough. So what do they do? They hire a consultant that says, we'll help you get your DEI score up. You need to have this uh, trans um, influencer do this little commercial. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that because the business side said to do it. They did it because the DEI score, uh, um, you have uh, you know, Target and all these different companies that um, are doing financially irresponsible stuff because they're being pushed to this DEI score. And, um, but their goal is to, uh, to get everybody to sign up with this digital currency because the normal currency is gonna be so worthless mm -hmm. that, um, and then once everybody signs up for the CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, that can tie together with all the other CBDs worldwide and you have your global currency, then they can, basically implement this, you can't buy or sell without this, you know, approval of the government. Yeah, they can control your every move, can't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what do we need to do as Americans today? This uh, calamity has not quite uh, hit us yet, but we're $35 trillion in debt. Uh, is there anything that can be done? Yeah, well, you can push back. And there are different governors that are saying, we want to push back. Um, you know, Governor DeSantis in Florida said he wants to cancel the CBDC. Um, you know, um, other ones want to cancel it. They want to push back. Um, and, and I think Trump as well. But with this, this is something that we have to have pushback. And we have to remember, in America, you're the king. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. The politicians are your servants. And so I give the word picture. Imagine visiting a castle and there's everything is going bad and all crime and tra And you go into the king's chamber and the king's like, I wish somebody would fix this mess. He's like, you're the king. These are your servants that are doing all this stuff. You need, you're the one accountable to God to fix it. That's like in America, I've seen all the terrible stuff going on and somebody watching TV saying, I wish somebody would fix it. Well, I have a finger go through the screen and tap you on the shoulder. You're the king. You're the one that's supposed to fix it. Well, I need somebody to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. Since when does the king sit on his throne and say, can somebody tell me what I'm supposed to do? No, it's your job to get educated on the issues, seek God's will, and you tell your representatives what needs to happen. And if they're not obeying you, you, you get them out, put in somebody that will do it. You're the king. It's the taking the authority of the believer message and applying it to the next level, not just yourself and your marriage and your family and your business, but the community and the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so today, you know, in the last few years, we've seen um, government, the federal government printing money at a rate and a pace that is just uh, mind boggling and unprecedented. Uh, how can they do that? How can the government just print as much money as it wants? I thought that there were some limitations on that. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's um, one of those shell games. So they don't actually print, they do print money. 
But the way that it works is um, the Treasury creates notes, a Treasury bill. It's, it's, a no, it's an IOU. They just take a piece of paper and write IOU, and then the Treasury sells these IOUs to these big banks around the world, and these big banks have accounts with the Federal Reserve. And so the Federal Reserve agrees to buy these Treasury bills from these big banks. But the Federal Reserve does not pay cash for them. It just credits their account with an electronic deposit. And so all of a sudden, this bank now has on its balance sheet this number with a lot of zeros behind it in the Federal Reserve. And so now they can loan money off of that and they can loan money, and it's called fractional reserve banking, so they only have to keep a little bit, 10% of the money, and they can lend out 90% and get interest on what they lend out. Okay. And then the bank that they lend it to only has to keep 10%, and they can lend out the rest on interest, and then the banks that they lend it to only have to keep 10%, and they lend the rest on And so um, it multiplies the, the money supply mm -hmm. like sevenfold, and it's just done with the, this treasury bill made out of nothing and the Federal Reserve buying them with just electronic uh, credits to an account that these banks have. It, it's a little bit of a convoluted, you know, thing to understand. You can watch a bunch of YouTube videos and you'll figure right, it out. Right. But, um, uh, but it, the bottom line is they create money out of nothing. Yeah. And so why are we paying taxes? Well, you pay taxes to support the federal government. It's like, yeah, but... They can do deficit spending. They, they, can, they can create money out of nothing. And so it's, it's, it sort of begs this question. It's like, you know, here are people struggling to pay taxes and the federal government can just create money out of nothing. And then what do they do with the billions of dollars? The ones that they get from you and the ones they create out of nothing, they give billions to Ukraine. Mm. And then lo and behold, we find out that in Ukraine, the corrupt leader keeps a little percentage of it and then funnels the rest of it right back to the corrupt politicians in America. It's a money laundering. Mm -hmm. So when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, the U.S. government, with her help, was giving aid to Ukraine. Ukraine's the poorest country in Europe. Guess what the number one country giving money to the Clinton Foundation was? Ukraine. It's like yeah. the poorest country in Europe giving the most money to the Clinton Foundation? Why would they just give the money? It's a money laundering. So the money goes from the U.S. government to Ukraine, the corrupt leader keeps a little bit, the rest of it gets funneled back to, I mean, here, it's in the news, you can look it up. Zelensky said the billions of dollars he is getting from America, he is going, he is investing in BlackRock to have them manage it for him. Well, BlackRock is one of the biggest one world government, world economic forum, globalists entities. And so it's US taxpayer money that through Ukraine is getting into BlackRock so they can push their globalist agenda, mm -hmm. right? So that's why a lot of people are questioning. It's like, has anybody done any accounting to see where the money goes that goes over there? Yeah. Well, uh, and so uh, the, the, what's the best mindset for an American today when it comes to these issues? Do we need to be uh, voting only for uh, fiscally conservative Ron Paul type candidates. I mean, Donald Trump, everybody, you know, very popular among conservatives, but he actually increased the national debt by massive amounts, probably far more than Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and I'm not thrilled with that. Yeah. Um, I, I do love Ron Paul and Rand Paul. Um, I've, I've met them both. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I ran for Congress and um, Phyllis Schlafly was a friend of mine, so I spoke at several conferences and Ron Paul was one of the speakers at the conferences, so I got to be friends with him. And, um, and so after I lost my congressional rant run, because I was running against Dick Ebhardt, I, I got one letter from a congressman thanking me for running, even though I lost, and it was from Ron Paul. Oh, how gracious. And he's like, you didn't win, but you put yourself out there, and we know you got you know, beat up, but, but just want to thank you for, for taking the, the, the effort. And it's like, how nice. I mean, who, who sends a letter to the loser, you know? I mean, if this was a, and- um, Yeah, especially in another state, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but I do think Senator Dirksen of Illinois said a statement. When I feel the heat, I see the light. Mm-hmm. So these politicians, they want to do one thing, they, get, they want to get reelected. Yeah. That's like the biggest deal to them. There are some really, really good ones, and a lot of times they don't get reelected because they're not doing whatever it takes to get reelected. Some, if they're in a conservative enough district, they get to stay in. But in 1980, a guy named James Buchanan won the Nobel Prize in economics because he figured out what motivates politicians. And so he's an economist, and he's like, why are, why are we keep increasing the debt? And he found out that if a politician is running for re-election, re he'll increase the debt to funnel money to his district because it'll help him get re-elected. Mm -hmm. And he won't vote for the corresponding tax increase to pay for it because that will hurt his re-election. And so you have these politicians. So here he is studying all the equations of you know, GDP and all these ratios and everything. It's like, he's an economist. And he's like, wait a second. If the politician's running for re-election, forget all that. He's just going to go in debt to spend money to get re-elected. And so, so he wins the Nobel Prize because he figures out that politicians will do whatever they can to get re-elected. <laughs> now, once you know that, now you can say, okay, I am going to uh, be your worst enemy in your reelection campaign, I'm gonna make a whole lot of noise and tell everybody bad things about you if, if you don't vote the way I want you to vote. And if you vote the way I want you, I'm gonna be your best friend. I'm gonna tell everybody to go out and vote for you, right? So, so if you know their, their big deal is to get reelected and you can either help or hurt that. And so that's why I, um, I really um, encourage people to, to hold their feet to the fire. And again, Senator Dirksen of Illinois, when I feel the heat, I see the light. When you put pressure on them, then they all of a sudden wake up. Yeah, yeah. I was looking for that quote one time and I was Googling, you know, because I always like to know the setting of where they set it. So it mm -hmm. you know, pulls up the search results. And the first site that came up was an Islamist site. Wow, how about that? And it says, this is how the politics works in America. When the politicians feel the heat, they see the light. <laughs> and it's like, here we are, people are saying, how do, you, how do you turn the country around? And here are people that have been here a relatively short time and they figured it out. Yeah, yeah. You have to make a lot of noise. You have to let them know that if they're not gonna, I mean, and so demonstrate in front of their the offices is what they do, um, or, or write editorials or whatever. But um, in addition to running for a local office or helping a local candidate or a local sheriff or whatever, or the first stair step is the school boards. Yeah, absolutely. Local, local, local. Well, we've got a couple of callers on the line here, Bill. I want to give them a shot uh, here as we're down to the last 11 minutes of the show. Uh, Elizabeth from Missouri, who looks like, Elizabeth, you are a Truth and Liberty subscriber. I want to thank you for that and uh, appreciate you calling in today. What is your question? Yes, sir. I, am, I was wondering, 
or no, my it's a statement more. Um, the obvious things that are going on, such as the open border, the destruction of the children, the push for aborting babies, uh, the defunding the police, it just uh, seems obvious to me that there is definitely um, an intentional agenda to destroy our nation. Yeah, um, I was reading in Isaiah, and it says, I, the Lord, created everything. I created this, that, and the other. And it says, I created the devourer. I'm like, what? The Lord created the devourer? And he thought, well, you know, in nature, if a animal dies, uh, like a dog on the side of the road, vultures come and devour it. If a bird dies, little ants are drawn to devour it. If a fish dies in a pond, little microbes are drawn to devour it. Well, dead and dying things attract devourers. And so if you have a spiritually dead and dying country, it's going to attract devourers. Mm. And, and you look in Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursings, one of the curses is you'll be in debt. Mm. It says the stranger will come in amongst you and rise up above you. Right? The stranger coming in, these are people coming across the border, and, and then they'll lend to you and you'll have to borrow from them. You'll be a debtor. And America is now the most in-debt nation that the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're under judgment. What do you do when you're under judgment? You repent really fast. And if you think of it as magnets that attract, and if you're in sin, sin attracts God's judgment. He's a just God. But if you repent of the sin, it's like the magnet flips, and it instantly repels the judgment and attracts God's blessings. And it can happen in an instant. Hmm. And you go back to ancient Israel, wicked King Manasseh sacrificing kids to Moloch, and the prophets come and says, it's, God, it's over. God is fed up. You are doing the same thing that the Canaanites did before Israel came in, sacrificing children to their pagan gods, the Amorites. And because they were doing it, and I'm a just God, and there's nothing more unjust than killing an innocent baby that didn't do anything wrong. I brought Israel in, not, I didn't give them the land because you're good people. I brought them in to judge the, the Canaanites that were here, right? And now because you're doing these wicked things, I'm going to drive you out. So the judgment was pronounced. And then you have Manasseh has a grandson named Josiah. Eight years old, becomes king. Teenager starts to seek the Lord. When he's in his early 20s, he tells him to clean out the temple that his granddad had neglected and trashed. And they find the law of God and they bring it to this young king. He hears it for the first time in his life. He rips his garments and repents. And he sends to a prophetess in town named Holda to ask what's going to happen. And she says, tell the man that sent you that judgment will come but not during his lifetime, because he repented when he heard the words of the Lord. And so for the rest of the 31-year reign of Josiah, he has this enormous Passover, and, and they even have it as two months, because in case people weren't you know, cleansed and holy, they could do it the next month. And, and then they had, he tore down these pagan Sodomite temples, and some of them were ones that Solomon had built. Wow. The Solomon that built the holy temple married a thousand wives who turned his heart away from God, and he built all these pagan temples that existed for 390 years until this young King Josiah came along and said, I don't care who built them, tear them down. And then he dug up the bones of the Sodomite priests and burned them. And then he sent the Levites out to teach the law. And it was during that revival that you can do the numbers. That's probably when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, got saved as young men. Right? The Lord taught the yeah. Word of God. And, and so here you have a nation that was sinning and judgment was pronounced, but they repented. Mm -hmm. And God said, okay, I'm going to put the judgment off. And, and so for the entire 31 reign of, of Josiah, there's, there's peace and prosperity. I believe 
that if we rend our hearts and be that Josiah generation, God can put it all off and he can do it in an instant. So there's the message of hope in there that and, and all liberty is individual and all repentance is individual. It's not, you know, somebody out there repenting. It's, oh, it's me, right? It's Bill Fetter repenting. It's, it's each one of us individually getting back to what? Our first love. Yeah. Getting back to reading the Bible every day and singing praise songs like you did and to, to just fall in love with the Lord and spend time with Him, mm-hmm. right? And if we each repent and take responsibility for ourselves, it's going to have a cumulative effect. And I believe that uh, God can turn this around in an instant. Right. Yeah. Amen. I mean, who would have thought that Elon Musk would have risen up and and caused such a stir by turning Twitter around? Who would have thought that, you know, these different ones that we didn't, you know, I mean, these aren't even like people known for being spiritual, but yet they're being used in a very powerful way. Who who would have thought Donald Trump would ever rise up and, you know, except Kim Clement who prophesied it. But other than that, um, and and look at what he uh, he's done to bless this nation. Well, I got I want I'd like to hear your thoughts, Bill, on another subject. It seems like recently um, Christians are uh, that that you know like us who think that we ought to be involved in government, that we ought to be standing up for uh, biblical values and and biblical truth in our culture, are being labeled as Christian nationalists. I'm sure you've heard that term. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as a smear, as a, a label that is, is trying to make it look like we're trying to impose some kind of uh, theocracy or uh, you know, religious tyranny on the nation. Have you heard this term? What does it mean? And, and, um, and what, what are your views on it? I'm just curious. Right. So historically, it has been called Christian patriotism. Mm-hmm. And you even have Franklin Roosevelt talking about being a Christian patriot and Franklin Roosevelt giving out Gideon's New Testaments and Book of Psalms to all the soldiers in World War II. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt saying that uh, that we need to fight to preserve these Christian liberties to future generations. And Winston Churchill, the fate of Christian civilization. So it's always been called Christian patriotism. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, uh, I think it was... Um, you know, Eisenhower, he says, we can take the Bible in one hand, the flag in the other and march together. And, and so nobody had a problem with Christian patriotism. Well, they want to use the word nationalism because it has a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Why? Because nationalism is what was used with the Nazis and with these other different countries. But let's, let's pause a second. Nationalism is in a sense wanting to preserve the nation. And nationalism is the opposite of globalism. Yes. So the globalists, all the way back to Nimrod, they don't want nations. They want all the people together under one Antichrist leader. (laughs) And so nations is sort of a dynamic tension to keep power from coalescing into one world government. And when and you look at the kingdoms throughout history, you'd have a king, but then he would want tax money. And so he would have like the king of England, he'd have barons that would collect the taxes. And he, he'd let these barons have an army, have a castle, and they would collect the taxes and he'd bring it in. Well, guess what? If King John didn't like one of them, he'd get rid of them and put in somebody else. And these, these barons were like, you know what? We're living on thin ice. And so one day they invite King John to um, a meeting. And he shows up, comes over the hill, and it's not just 25 barons, it's them with their armies. And they surround him on the fields of Runnymede. And they said, you know, we don't like the fact that you get rid of us anytime you want. And so we want you to sign this Magna Carta, which limits your arbitrary power. 
and the king like didn't want to, but he didn't have a choice, and so he signed it. But it's just like so now you got the power in England, not just one king, but now it's one king with 25 barons. And, and it's like you take a pie and you cut it in, into half, and then you cut it into quarters, and, and you gradually take the power of a monarch and you cut it up into lots of pieces. Well, in America, we, we cut it up into the most pieces ever. And so, in America, our, our nation is one that is dedicated to preserving individual rights, mm -hmm. preserving government from the consent of the governed, preserving that everybody is equal. These are good qualities that our nation is dedicated to preserve, and so we want to preserve our nation that guarantees these things. Over in the National Socialist Republic, right, the, the National Socialist Workers' Party, or Nazi, um, their nationalism was, was Hitler, was a dictator who was socialist, who said, we don't want people to have rights. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, right, the Soviet Union, and um, their nation is totalitarian. And so these other nations, their nationalism is totalitarian. In America, our nationalism is wanting to preserve a nation where you're the king. The citizen is the king. And so they, they do this word game, but it's intentional to try to be a smear. But when we take it apart, it's like, no, preserving our nation is a good thing because it's the opposite of globalism. Mm -hmm. I tell people, you know, Trump, for all of his different um, behaviors and so forth, he is not a globalist. Right. He wants to preserve a nation, right. and, and he's one of the few, I mean, there are others, but there's, he's one of the few that says, we want to keep this thing from becoming a one world government, and the only way to do that is to keep, take the Tower of Babel and scatter it, right, to keep it against it. So to take the Constitution, takes the power of a king, King George, and splits it into three branches and pits them against each other. So it's a three-way tug of war. Wow, well, that's amazing. Well, folks, uh, uh, I thank you for watching today. We're now down to pretty close to the end of our program. And Bill, I just want to thank you for coming up here and being a part of the show today. It's been a real treat and uh, learned a lot. Uh, I always do when I'm around you. <laughs> so um, I want to hear your message on manhood. I oh, you want to hear about manhood? Well, you gave a powerful message at the Bible conference this summer. Yeah, you're referring to the summer family that we were both at, and so I spoke on manhood, and, and uh, that's going to be available soon. But uh, folks, thank you for watching Truth and Liberty today. I hope this was a blessing uh, to you. I want to remind you that all of our shows are archived and are available on our website at truthandliberty.net. So if you ever miss a show, you can go there and watch it. You can also uh, pull up the link and forward it to your family and friends. Uh, today's episode would be a great one to forward to others because there's so much helpful uh, historical information to others. Also want to remind you about Bill's books, uh, Miracles in American History and the new book on Booker T. Washington among the 30 others that are available on his website. Uh, so we're going to be back again tomorrow at 3.30 Mountain Time here on the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. And I encourage you guys to tune in then again. You won't don't want to miss. It's going to be a great show. And also make plans now to attend the Truth and Liberty Conference in September. Thanks again for watching. God bless all of you. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.